You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Scarlett Fu in for Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Alex Brinka in for Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, an escalation in the U.S.-China tensions as China bans Micron's chips on cybersecurity risks. We'll bring you all the details. Plus, a record fine for Meta. The social media giant ordered to pay $1.3 billion to the EU after regulators said it failed to protect personal information. We'll break that, do- that decision down. And Ford stepping up its electric vehicle output after reaching a series of deals to buy lithium from projects in Canada to Chile. We're going to be hearing from the CEO later this hour. But first, we want to give you a check on markets and where things stand at midday here in New York. It's very much a wait-and-see game when it comes to the broader equity market, both on the debt-selling negotiations and what the Federal Reserve decides to do with interest rates. Negotiating teams, by the way, are back uh, on the, at the table today in Washington, D.C., However, we do see the NASDAQ 100 leading the way. Tech stocks uh, continue to be the outperformers here, even as chip makers are under pressure. We'll get to that a little bit later on. The NASDAQ 100, by the way, at a 13-month high. And XLF, which is the ETF that tracks financial stocks, up by a third of 1%. Banks very much in focus today with J.P. Morgan Chase holding its investor day. And also helping to boost sentiment is uh, PacWest. The Beverly Hills-based lender is uh, not a holding in this ETF, but it is taking taking steps to boost its liquidity by selling uh, $2.6 billion of real estate loans at a discount. And the two-year yield ticking up to 4.33%. There's no eco data today, so expect a lot of uh, movement uh, based on incremental uh, movement, hopefully progress in those debt ceiling discussions. Let's switch it up here and take a look at commodities. Uh, crude oil has now flipped to the upside, up by four-tenths of 1%, even as copper is down by 1.3%. Still a lot of concerns over what's going on in China. That post-COVID COVID rebound has not been as strong as many people had hoped, and the lack of fresh stimulus measures in China is certainly holding back some of the metals. And I wanted to point out the Hang Seng Index closing up by more than 1% uh, percent after Joe Biden, the president, said that he expects U.S.-China relations to improve very shortly. Details on that coming up. And finally, Greek stocks uh, getting a big, big day here. They made a new 10-year high after national elections. It looks like the incumbent prime minister is in position to get another four 
four-year term, which is certainly a good thing for all his investment-friendly policies that investors are keeping a very close eye on. Alex, what about you? What are you watching? I'm watching the top tech movers today, Scarlett. Uh, first with Meta. Investors are really taking that $1.3 billion fine in stride coming over from the EU. Perhaps that's because the company has actually in the past threatened to leave if there's not a, a resolution on the EU's kind of push for them not to send user data over overseas to the US. I'm also looking at Albemarle. Now, this is a company that just inked a lithium partnership with Ford. Ford has a $50 billion electric vehicle plan. And for Albemarle to be in the mix, investors are, are liking a little bit of that. Now, in terms of what's going on in the cybersecurity space, there is kind of our top name of the day, Micron. China's cybersecurity regulator said it found relatively serious cybersecurity risks when it comes to the company's chips. Whether this is political banter or there are actual risks, we're going to break all that down in the show. But for now, investors drove the stock down around 5%. It's paired some of those losses. Uh, but we'll get into the details here soon. Scarlett? All right. And let's uh, stay on that right now because we're going to go now to San Francisco and bring in Ian King, who's covered semiconductors in Asia and now on the West Coast. So Ian, with his decades of experience, is certainly the best person to speak on this. Ian, uh, as Alex was setting up for us, it's curious, this ban on Micron products. What, what kind of history does Micron have with China specifically? Is there a notable, significant history between the two? Yeah, I mean, there are a number of incidents. So the big thing to point out is that Micron, unlike its South Korean competitors, Samsung and uh, SK Hynix, doesn't have a production plant in China. Those guys do, which obviously makes them a, a little bit closer to Beijing's heart in terms of what that country wants to do with domesticating its own chip industry. And the other sort of negative uh, thing that's happened for Micron in the past is Micron went to court with a Taiwanese company arguing that that you know that company was stealing its IP to give to China so there's there's some real kind of tension there in the past now Ian uh, Micron obviously caught in the middle of this political banter if you're Qualcomm if you're Broadcom if you're Intel should you be worried that you're next and if not why is Micron the target of, uh, of Beijing's ire at the moment I mean the, the way to think about this is China needs Qualcomm, China needs Intel, China needs Broadcom. It doesn't need Micron. The chips that Micron makes, the DRAM and the NAND flash memory chips, are basically exactly the same as the ones that Samsung makes, as the ones that SK Hynix makes. So literally you can drop them into a piece of electronics, pull one out, put one in. You can't do that with other products from those companies you mentioned. So that's what's going on here. That's incredible context here because Micron's memory chips are kind of commoditized. They're pretty standard um, components as opposed to, say, NVIDIA's graphics chips. How much of this is China buying time or giving its own domestic industry some time to, to bloom? I, I mean, if that's the plan, we're talking a decade, two decades before they'll have equivalent capabilities. What this is being seen as more of, Scarlett, is really Beijing has just really had to take it on the chin. We've seen all of these actions by the U.S. government against Chinese technology companies. And really, Beijing has had nothing to fight back with mm. apart from Micron. It can take a swing at them. Ian King, our in-house semiconductor expert. Thank you. I want to now bring in the Washington angle on this. We have Bloomberg's Haley Lines. Kaylee, as we see this kind of back and forth between Beijing and D.C., what do you think is next here, or does D.C. have a response to this Micron move from China? 
Yeah, well, we've already heard from the Commerce Department on this, saying that Beijing's conclusion here that Micron poses a cybersecurity, uh, national security threat, has no basis in fact, and that this action, along with some other recent action uh, that Beijing has taken, is inconsistent with China's assertions that it's opening up its markets and is committed to a transparent regulatory framework. So that's the U.S. response. Of course, China, for its part in, in releasing this conclusion from this review, says it wasn't political, that it is about national security, but it does kind of have this sense of escalating a fight between the world's two largest economies when it comes to this technology, because we have to keep in mind the U.S. has already taken plenty of action on its own. It's blacklisted certain Chinese technology firms, and of course, late last year also uh, introduced a pretty sweeping restriction on selling advanced semiconductor manufacturing equipment to China. You know, it's, it's ironic that this is happening right as President Joe Biden is in Asia attending the G7 summit and making comments about how he sees U.S.-China relations actually improving very shortly. Give us some context for when he made those comments and what he might be referring to. Well, that was him speaking before he left the G7 summit in Japan. You're right, Scarlett. Our Amory Hordern was asking him about uh, China. Also, the question around sanctions to facilitate a meeting between Defense Secretary Lord, Lloyd Austin and his counterpart, which that, he, we understand, is under review by the administration. Uh, still something potentially in the works. But he did say, referring to the Chinese spy balloon incident that captured all of our attention earlier this year, calling it silly, saying that he does expect relations between uh, the U.S. and China to thaw. Uh, in the near term, it does it, it poses a very interesting contrast between the tone of the president's remarks over the weekend versus then just hours later, later China making this move against a U.S. company. Now, Kaylee, this isn't the only big conversation happening in D.C. Uh, it is start of the week. Uh, where are we next on the debt ceiling debate? What do we expect today on this Monday? Well, at 5.30 p.m., there is going to be a meeting between President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. So that's really what we're all uh, looking forward to. Now, those two did speak on the phone yesterday when President, the President Biden was on Air Force One on his way back to the U.S. It seemed that their tone coming out of that phone call was one of more optimism. But really, this is going to be about real progress uh, being made. We understand that the two sides are still really far apart in the negotiations as their different parties have been working uh, over the weekend, working again at the Capitol this morning on this, but the issue of spending cuts, spending caps, stricter work requirements for entitlements, permitting reform, all still on the table, all still needing to be ironed out into an ultimate compromise, because even once we get a deal between uh, Speaker McCarthy and President Biden, it still needs to work its way through both chambers of Congress to make it back to the president's desk for him to sign off on it. And we're just 10 days out now from June 1st, which Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen reiterated over the weekend could be the earliest possible X date. Yeah. Clock is ticking. Kelly, thank you so much. Kelly Lines joining us from Washington. It's time now for Talking Tech. First up, Uber. The ride-sharing company is placing its head of diversity on leave after complaints of insensitivity. CEO Dara Kashrashahi asked Bo Young-Lee to take a leave of absence after workers complained that an employee event she moderated called Don't Call Me Karen was insensitive to people of color.
And turmoil in the cyber insurance market. Global insurers are racing to figure out how to avoid covering government-sponsored cyber attacks and catastrophic hacks. Ransomware attacks increased by 87% in 2022 from the year prior, with global cyber premiums expected to exceed $23 billion by 2025. Plus, Instagram ran into some technical difficulties on Sunday night. Tens of thousands of users reported that they could not access the app in what was the second widespread disruption in just over two months. Down detectors now reporting that the problem lasted for about an hour and the app is back up and running now. Scarlett? All right, well, we're going to stick with Instagram because its parent company, Meta, now faces a record $1.3 billion fine in the EU. So we want to bring in Alex Webb of Bloomberg Quick Take, who covers all things tech, to give us some more context here. Alex, this is something that was not a total surprise, but the amount is certainly a surprise. Yes, it is a record fine for Facebook. The question is whether ultimately they will end up paying it. There is, this all pertains to the so-called US-EU privacy shield. This was an agreement that previously let companies transfer data from Europe to the US without any major questions asked. Then all of a sudden, there were concerns that actually US intelligence agencies might have access to this data. So they scrapped the privacy shield. Facebook has, according to this uh, decision at any rate, failed to prevent data from being shipped over to the US. There is, however, a new privacy shield. Talks about it are in the offing that could be agreed upon by the end of the Northern Hemisphere summer. Now, Alex, investors, though, are not necessarily seeing this as a bad thing. Perhaps that's because the company in the past has threatened to actually pull out of the EU. How are you taking um, this stock reaction that the shares are up about 2% on the news, even though this is a record fine for Meta? Well, often in these sort of cases, when a fine is doled out, stocks do tend to pop because investors have clarity. They know how much this is likely to cost the company if it does end up costing them anything at all. That clarity, therefore, results in a stock price gain often. Uh, and don't forget, you know, Facebook has oodle, Meta has oodles of money, has very healthy free cash flow, even before the savings program that they've been putting into place. They, you know. Uh, reported 28 billion of, of revenue in the first quarter. So 1.3 billion, you know, while clearly painful, is not going to bankrupt the company. Yeah, absolutely. And we've seen how those tech companies with their free cash flow have been um, regarded as safe havens for investors in this turbulent time in the markets. One thing that I did notice in the reporting is that Meta was given time to suspend any future transfer of data. Does that mean that there is a way out for the company where perhaps the fine could be whittled down? No, it means that if they don't do it by that date, then there could be there's the risk of further punishment. The the, the real actual, one of the really interesting pieces of reporting on this about a year ago, Motherboard managed to get hold of an internal document from Facebook, which likened data to a pot of ink that is thrown into a swimming pool. That the ink is in the pool now. How do you gather that ink back up? The internal Facebook document heavily implied that that was essentially impossible. That's the real challenge they face right now. Perhaps over the course of the past year, since this reporting uh, was published, they have found a way of, of putting the ink back in the in the pot but it is a real challenge and it'll be interesting to see how or if they do it alex this is meta caught in the crosshairs this this beats out the record fine that was previously applied to amazon are there other companies um, in the eu that should be looking at this as kind of a warning sign who should be actually looking at where their ink is spread throughout their organizations i i think that the EU has been very slow on GDPR, on the, on the general d data uh, protection rules regulation, and they are clearly picking the big 
most egregious victims first. It's still five years, so first is a very long timeline. It is a warning shot to other people to say, you know, sort your stuff out. I'm sure there are plenty of other companies who have done this. Facebook also sits on one of the biggest pools of you know, consumer data in the world. So it's unsurprising, therefore, that they are gone for first. I wouldn't like to name names on who else might be in the firing line, but they, I'm sure there is a very long list of people who could be vulnerable to this. Well, Bloomberg's Alex Webb, thanks for joining and some clarity on that situation. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Rory Harvey, executive vice president of General Motors, spoke exclusively to Bloomberg's Matt Miller about its new line of EVs, including an electric Chevrolet Silverado. Take a listen. We have our Ultium platform, and the Ultium platform actually gives us the ability to be able to configure uh, battery packs in many different formats in terms of the amount of modules that are in there. So dependent upon the capabilities of the vehicle, dependent upon the prices of the vehicle, dependent upon uh, what functionality we want from the vehicle, then we configure those Ultium uh, battery packs in a way that fits the customer needs. So there's a, a huge decree of commonality within Ultium, but it also provides us with ultimate flexibility. Uh, is Ultium able to scale from, you know, a $30,000 vehicle all the way up to a $150,000 vehicle? It certainly is. That's one of the, uh, the great things about Ultium as a product. That's, that's very impressive. Now, having said that, uh, more people who are ordering your vehicles are, are paying closer to the upper end. I saw that of the Silverado HD orders, which is a work truck, uh, let's be fair, right? Uh, 84% are for AT4 and Denali trims. In fact, more than 50% are for Denali and Denali Ultimate trims. So they're paying top dollar for these trucks. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, and I think that's, uh, again, it's just credibility in terms of the desirability of the product portfolio. If you looked at the General Motors product portfolio today, uh, I think it's, uh, it's outstanding. Uh, and if you looked at it in terms of what uh, customers are, are looking at to buy to meet their needs, as an example, they're, they're paying a premium. So, uh, again, it just shows the desirability of our vehicles uh, and the fact that we've got vehicles that are attractive to our customers. You have a small electric vehicle in the Bolt um, that addresses that issue. Uh, how are your EVs? sales as a percentage of the total what do you expect for example Rory in, in 2023 and 2024 
Yeah, that one's really interesting because, as you know, uh, Matt, the uh, the adoption rates continue to change. Uh, if you looked at the, the data for April, I think it was the uh, highest penetration of EVs in the industry, as an example. So we adjust, uh, you know, our production capabilities uh, in line with uh, consumer demand. So I guess I'm not going to give a, a definitive number, but suffice to say that, you know, it's increasing all of the time. And if you looked at the, the second half of the year, certainly if you take the, the Cadillac Lyric as an example, we know that we started off deliberately so with relatively uh, low volumes and we're building significantly in half two. So it's going to take a an ever greater proportion of General Motors sales. Rory, let me finally ask you about the chip situation. Are you all caught up in terms of the supply chain? Can you get all the chips that you need to produce um, in the in the size that you want to? Uh, I would say work in progress. I would say it's significantly better than where it was historically. Um, I would say that we are not in a position that, that we could declare that it, it's all totally behind us, but I would say that it's much more stable, and I would say that it's going to continue to improve going forward. So a much better position overall. And you can watch Rory Harvey's full interview with Bloomberg on the terminal. Now, Matt Miller has been pretty busy because he also sat down with Ford CEO Jim Farley about that company ramping up its EV production, which includes striking a number of deals to buy lithium for batteries. Matt joins us now from Ford's production plant in Michigan. Matt, I thought you were going to wear a hard hat. Um, I didn't realize you were outside in front of cars, but of course you are. Uh, tell us a little bit about the Ford lithium partnership that it made public today. How critical is this partnership to meeting Ford's EV? goals. Yeah, it's very important because, you know, last year Ford sold, at least in the U.S., I think about 61, 62,000 electric vehicles in total. In 2026, they want to sell 2 million. So they've got to ramp up substantially. And the most difficult part of that, according to Jim Farley, is scaling up battery production. In order to build those batteries, they need a lot of chemicals and minerals like lithium. They need nickel. They need cobalt. And getting those things isn't particularly easy, especially since 80% of that refining process currently sits in China. So Ford has made a number of deals, three on lithium, with the biggest lithium producers in the world um, to, to get that refining done in North America and in South America. So uh, in Canada and Mexico and in Chile. That's really key to keeping costs down and that's really the biggest part of the vehicle. So they're going to be building their next generation electric vehicle vehicles in Tennessee as uh, well as around the rest of North American plants that they already have production in. Um, but getting these chemicals, getting these minerals is really important. And Matt, that sounds expensive. Are those costs being passed along to consumers? What's the pricing strategy look like for Ford's EVs as they roll them out? Yeah, so it is very expensive, and right now um, they have a negative 100% margin and change, right? They're losing $3 billion this year on about $3 billion in revenue. They hope to change that dramatically, so by 2026, which remember is less than three years away, they want to have an 8% margin on their entire electric vehicle fleet. So that would be a massive change, a 10% margin on the internal combustion engine fleet um, and they need those big margins which they already make on you know the big trucks and the very expensive gas uh, cars they sell like the Mustang or the Bronco that you see behind me they need those profits to invest into this uh, battery electric vehicle business before it starts making its own money yeah its own virtuous circle Matt thank you so much Matt Miller of course joining us right now uh, from outside Ford's production plant 
Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Scarlett Fu in New York. And I'm Alex Brink in San Francisco. All right, let's get you a check on the markets at midday here in New York. Another day of muted price action when it comes to equities and the major indexes. The S&P moving up marginally by one-tenth of one percent. Uh, clearly, investors are waiting for any kind of progress on debt ceiling negotiations, as well as uh, responding to commentary from Fed officials. Two Fed uh, regional bank presidents, Neil Kashkari and James Bullard, uh, giving some hawkish commentary, talking about how a pause is not necessarily uh, the the, the thing that's going to come up next, perhaps a rate hike might be in order in the coming future, and also how inflation is still something the Fed is keeping its eye on. Nevertheless, you continue to see those big cap tech stocks uh, piling on gains. We have the Nasdaq 100 already at a 13-month high, gaining another two-tenths of 1% Apple among the big gainers here. And XLF, the ETF that tracks financial stocks, in focus today as JP Morgan Chase holds its investor day, and PacWest makes some moves to shore up its liquidity. The two-year yield inching up by six basis points these days, that kind of is an inching up, at 4.32%. Uh, we know that Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has said that the chances the U.S. can get, pay all of its bills by mid-June when the next round of tax receipts come in are quite low. And we do know that President Joe Biden and Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, are scheduled to resume meeting at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time today after the markets close. So there's a lot of wait and see until we get to that point. Now, taking a look at one individual name, it's Micron. And the stock is in retreat today, falling as much as 5% from Friday's close to an 11-month high. But today, it is coming down a little bit because like so many other tech stocks, Micron has had a banner 2023 so far. The memory chip maker had gained as much as 37% after giving indication that the industry has worked its way through most of the oversupply of chips. But what happened today is that China said Micron's products failed to pass a cybersecurity review, and that's led to a decision to ban Micron products. Other U.S. chip makers are falling in sympathy, while we've seen some Korean chip makers like Hynix and SK gain as a result. Alex? Now, increasingly, leaders of AI companies are asking Congress to establish safeguards to mitigate threats their technology poses, like OpenAI CEO and many others. But what kinds of threats does AI pose to society exactly? We'll bring in Sarah Krebs, director of the Tech Policy Institute over at Cornell, a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institute, who recently wrote that large language models, quote, may disrupt far more than just the economy. They also appear poised to challenge democracy, too. Let's bring Sarah in for a deeper dive. Sarah, tell me, um, challenges to democracy. What do you mean by that? Yeah, thanks. It's great to be here. So one of the things, so I've been working with language models now for several years, and the concern I had was that if looking at 2016, there were bad actors that were trying to insinuate themselves in the democratic process, what happens now when these language models enter in and make it really easy to generate a lot of content, credible content, really quickly? So we wanted to map that terrain. And so we did an experiment and randomly sent AI-generated texts and human-generated texts to members of uh, Congress, the state legislatures around the country. And we saw that members of Congress cannot tell the difference. And anyone who's worked with ChatGPT can see just how plausible sounding this content is. And so I think it's important for us to understand the threat and uh, by way of mitigating that threat. And I think that's what we were trying to uncover with this research. 
Sarah, when I think of where misinformation typically lives, that's on social media. So I, I have to ask, AI companies, uh, folks like Sam Altman are going to Congress saying, hey, regulate us. Uh, social media companies, you've kind of heard the same tune. Who do you think is actually, where does the onus fall in terms of who needs to intervene here and make sure that AI misinformation and the impact on democracy doesn't get out of control? Right. I think what we've seen with technology and regulation is that often it's very reactive at the federal level. And I think there are good reasons for that. This technology is moving so quickly. And by contrast, for example, the European Union is trying to really lean into regulation. But I think there's a real risk that they are going to pass this this AI Act and it will come into force and already be obsolete. So I think some of the, the onus actually is on the firms and OpenAI has done some of this by making certain outputs uh, not possible. So anyone who's done certain types of trying to push the boundaries on outputs might see that uh, OpenAI doesn't actually permit those. So I think, again, this is a spirit of trying to understand through the public and private partnerships you know, government and, and firms, kind of what that risk is, uh, that threat is, but also to try to think through and anticipate, is this a too early, you know, to regulate or too late? And I think we're still really trying to understand what this technology is about. Uh, and so lurching into something at the federal level might be a little premature. So following on what you said, Sarah, about the onus falling on the firms, firms are made up of people. So I, I wonder, Anytime the, uh, there's a new leader in charge or they have someone else uh, looking over regulation or their policy side, whatever they propose could change as well. How concerned are you about, I guess, the, the quality of people who are uh, making these kinds of decisions at these big firms? Right. And this is a question, is a great question because we've been thinking about this for several years in different contexts. Um, content moderation, when Facebook was under fire for what they were permitting and not permitting. And it's re a real debate about kind of outsourcing the public market space, marketplace of ideas, for example, to private firms. Uh, and again, that's something that I think in Europe they're less tolerant of. And in the US, uh, I think for a good reason, we're saying let's let these firms innovate. But what we need to be thinking through is just what guardrails do we need in place to kind of uh, guard against the, the more extreme uh, consequences of those technologies. It's interesting that you said uh, Europe is already moving ahead and perhaps whatever policy they institute might become obsolete quickly. But because they are moving ahead, do they become, do they set the precedent that the U.S. then needs to kind of follow up with? You know, if we look at previous technologies, I don't think that we have, uh, that the U.S. has fallen in lockstep at all with Europe when it comes to big tech and technology. And, and I think one reason is, is if you look at where big tech resides, it's, it's almost I exclusively in the United States. And so these things do become kind of circular, which is Europe is more inclined to lean into regulation in part because it's not harming their, their, their firms. Um, and the U.S., maybe because it has not leaned into regulation, has really, I think, fostered an environment of innovation. Mm. And, and, and again, kind of consequently, there are fewer incentives for the U.S. to be out in front. And I think, again, you know, when we look at where, where uh, there's an interesting story about Google's BARD, and they haven't, they released it in 180 countries, but not in Europe. And, you know, when we look at the history of big tech and uh, legal, you know, litigation, 
Big tech, American companies have not always fared well in Europe. And so I think there is some wariness of these, these you know, ChatGPT, which was banned by the, banned by the Italian government. Other firms actually not only not following an offset, but really trying quite apprehensive of engaging in, in that sort of European regulatory space. So I don't think the U.S. will go in that direction, not just because of what we're seeing already, but what we've seen with other forms of technology in the past. Now, Sarah, you, you talk about the U.S. being reactive when it comes to regulation. We haven't seen any meaningful regulation against reigning in the power of big tech, against reigning in social media. What actually do you think needs to happen for AI regulations to cross the line here uh, in the Mm -hmm. United States? Yeah, it's a great question because, you know, again, everything is so reactive. When we look back to the history of arms control, no, there was some indication that we should do arms control on nuclear weapons early. But really, it didn't happen until after the Cuban Missile Crisis, and you know where the, the world almost blew up. Um, and unfortunately, I think that it takes kind of a, a, a real crisis, existential crisis like that, to happen before meaningful regulation can take place. And I do yeah. think it raises this question of: Is are we at that point where where meaningful regulation is needed? And I would submit that you know we have some threats on the horizon. But because this technology is evolving so quickly and because, frankly, I don't think these existential risks have presented and are really even a hypothetical risk, I think it Mm -hmm. is a little too early. Um, But, you know, frankly, also, we have to think about the political environment in Washington, which is uh, not really conducive to doing anything meaningful on really anything because there might be an agreement that something needs to be done, but disagreement on how to do it. That seems to be the way of Washington. Sarah, really appreciate your joining us and sharing your insight. Sarah Kreps is professor of law and director of the Tech Policy Institute at Cornell. Now, coming up, there's more on AI, this time from an investing perspective. We're going to be joined by Compound's Michael Dempsey up next. And in the meantime, keeping an eye on shares of PayPal, which are popping today, as Venmo introduces an account for teenagers who are between 13 to 17 years old for sending and receiving money. This feature will come with a debit card and plans to roll over to select customers starting next month. PayPal up by better than 3%. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. There are many companies that are going to struggle in their transition to really deliver AI solutions at scale. Consumers are really engaging with the AI in a way that just seems so much more real and authentic than they ever have. I think the bigger opportunity actually lies in the enterprise. I think AI is going to be deployed into every facet of work. I think we're at a moment here where there is a tremendous advantage for US-based companies. I think on the application side, I think the Chinese uh, companies potentially can do really, really Wow. I think we actually need to be going faster on the regulatory front. We are really thinking about generative AI as a tool for good. I do think there's an opportunity for um, perhaps pro-technology policy making. And that was a compilation of what our recent VC Spotlight guests are saying about AI investments here and around the world. We're going to continue the conversation now with Michael Dempsey. He is managing partner at Compound, which is a thesis-driven, research-centric seed-stage investment firm that's focused on emerging technologies with more than $225 million in assets under management. Michael, it's so good to speak with you. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us. I guess I want to start with just the overall state of AI, uh, because from traditional market watchers' perspective, AI seems to be in a bubble. Bank of America strategist Michael Hartnett says tech is forming a bubble in AI, in particular is in a baby bubble. Bubbles start with easy money, they end with rate hikes. How much do you agree with that? You know, I think, I think in some ways I do agree with it. I think that there's a kind of vacuum of conviction in areas to spend time in on the investor side today after kind of a, a very crazy past few years um, and, you know, things cycling in and out of the zeitgeist like crypto, for an example. Um, I do think that unlike a lot of prior areas, there will be massive disruption and there is so much ROI that can happen um, with a ton of different industries. And I think for the first time, um, people can see it and feel it in a way that is very tangible to their day-to-day -day lives. And so that creates some sort of compounding effect of um, the kind of zeitgeist in the moment and, and how big it feels. Because at every dinner, at every interaction, someone is talking about AI, someone's talking about the ethics of it, et cetera. Michael, I used to cover tech deals, and, and some of this vibe kind of throws me back to when Airbnb, Uber were doing their massive funding rounds around some consumer tech when they were still private. A lot of that was driven by folks like yourself, but also bigger investors, growth money, private equity firms piling in. Is that kind of money already moving into this market? Do you think that that will fuel some of this potential for bubble that you're talking about? It's starting to. I think more and more people are trying to figure out what are the areas in which they can, you know, properly deploy hundreds of millions of dollars. And you see that on the foundation model side of things in the larger AI labs. And I think you're going to start to see it on the more application layer and middleware side of things. And so it's it's definitely starting. We're seeing it now with the full stack, kind of larger scale VC firms, some of the growth firms. And then obviously on the hedge fund side, as we're seeing on public markets, people are trying to figure out outside of NVIDIA, what are the plays that they should be having to get exposure to things that feel quite asymmetric um, from an upside perspective and just incredibly large scale if it does work which is kind of our job. Michael, I'm curious about your investment portfolio. How much of it centers on AI? Is it less than half, more than two thirds? And when, when we talk about centered on AI, are these companies that started with the um, goal of entering and building out AI or have they pivoted to AI or, and expanded to AI from where they started? 
Yeah, so we've been investing in AI or ML, as we used to call it, since 2014. And I think probably about 60% of our portfolio falls within that area now. And that's because AI moved from a very kind of vertical-specific um, misnomer to now being a horizontal platform. And so everything from biology companies using AI um, to kind of do more of a search and discover instead of a random walk in discovery to um, core companies like Runway ML, Wave.ai, that are doing kind of full-stack, building their own models, using it in very unique ways. Uh, and so I, I think for us, we view ourselves as very AI-native investors and think that most of how we like to invest is companies that either have a unique take on product as it's enabled by the bleeding edge of AI or are building and kind of pushing that bleeding edge in their core category. Let's talk regulatory risk or appetite for regulation from some of your portfolio companies. Which side of that debate are you falling on? Where do you think in the U.S. in particular our government should be getting in and kind of laying out the guardrails for what this industry's impact could be on consumers, on businesses, and on tech writ large? Yes, yeah, so I watched the entire hearing last week, and I think generally everyone did a really incredible job. Um, Sam, obviously, is the one who uh, got the most praise for his embrace of regulation. I think he made a very strong point, which I agree with, which is that on the startup side, and really even the mid-sized company side, I don't think regulation should come into play um, just yet. I think there's all sorts of ethical dilemmas to discuss around how to use different types of training data, what data you can train on, how do you get opt-in, etc. But I think a lot of our companies are taking an approach of making sure they're doing things responsibly and making sure that they're doing things transparently. And I think it's a little too early to be trying to put into effect things that could hamstring development, especially in the United States, because I do think this is some form of an existential technology, and we want to make sure we're continually pushing the frontier of that. And while there are certain areas, um, like these large models and kind of frontier models, that could have regulation at the compute layer, I think more and more as people start to get better at miniaturizing models, doing things locally, it's going to become really difficult. And I'm not sure on the government side we yet have a understanding or a group of people with enough understanding to properly regulate something that is so important and um, honestly is moving so quickly. Our previous guest, Sarah Krebs of the Cornell Tech Policy Institute, was just saying that uh, the onus really falls on the firms themselves uh, to propose regulation or to try to set up their own guardrails. To that end, is there anyone that you've encountered, that you've engaged with, who you believe is a leader in, in thinking through some of these issues that you think people need to be paying attention to? To be honest, I think it's most of the people who are running these large uh, these large labs, whether it's kind of people like Sam. I think Gary Marcus made some really good points as a professor in the hearing. I think there are people that are trying to take um, ethical approaches. The team at Runway cares a lot about making sure they work with creators. Um, but I think, you know, to Sam's point, you know, these people have day jobs that are, you know, probably the most exciting they've ever been mm. and something they view as kind of their life's work. So I do think it's hard. I think more and more as more people who have uh, been at large organizations and seen regulation in other lines of technology start to really dig into AI, we will start to have people rise naturally. Yeah. But to be honest, right now, most of the people are those who have the depth of understanding of, of knowing how quickly this moves and the scale at which it's moving. And those people are building right now. All right, Michael Dempsey, managing partner at Compound. Thank you so much for giving us your perspective.
SpaceX launched four private astronauts en route to the International Space Station, including the first woman from Saudi Arabia to travel to space. That crew lifted off atop a Falcon 9 rocket Sunday evening from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. That mission, operated by Axiom Space, is the second of four human spaceflight launches that SpaceX is set to handle for the company. Axiom has plans to build its own private space station in the future. Now, Apple is just a few weeks away from debuting its mixed reality headset. Bloomberg's Mark Gurman has been following the project incredibly closely, and he joins us now for more. Mark, what do we need to know about what's coming? We've heard about this for a minute. Give us the, the top deal on this headset. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's definitely uh, been a minute. So we're actually right now two weeks away, uh, two weeks and uh, five minutes away, I should say, uh, from that headset's uh, launch event. This is going to be Apple's first major new product uh, in eight years, right? Since the original Apple Watch was introduced uh, and went on sale in 2015. This is going to be a really interesting test case for Apple, right? You know, Apple didn't necessarily create the MP3 player markets, the smartphone markets, the tablet markets, but there was a sense that those areas were soon about to take off and explode, right? Mixed reality is a little bit different. Apple is really gonna have to come in here and maybe define this market, right? Meta's there, uh, HTC is a big player, Sony, but it's super nascent. We're talking, you know, fewer than 10 million units of these devices going on sale uh, are being sold on an annual basis right now, right? So Apple's gonna have to come in here and shake it up from the very bottom. Uh, and they're coming in with a device that's a little bit experimental. It's gonna be very expensive, uh, anywhere between, I'm told, $2,800 and $3,200, right? It's going to have some pretty intense technology, uh, over a dozen sensors on the outside. You'll control it with your eyes and hands. Uh, you'll use it for virtual reality, FaceTime, and productivity. Uh, very interested to see how Apple positions it. I'm told uh, they're gonna push it towards creatives and people who wanna use it for productivity as the future of the computer. Uh, I definitely think this is gonna be exciting for consumers, but there's a very big risk here for the company, right? I think it's either mm -hmm. going to be a huge flop or a huge success. And for Apple, there's really nothing in between. Quite the binary call there from our very own Mark Gurman. Thank you for joining us on Apple and their headsets. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Make sure to tune in tomorrow as our very own Caroline Hyde sits down for an exclusive interview with TikTok CEO Sho Chu. That comes from the Qatar Economic Forum. You won't want to miss it. And don't forget to check out our podcast. You can find it on the terminal as well as online. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.